I welcome you to the Holistic Health Show. I'm Dr. Carl O'Helvey, your host. My guest today, Miriam Kalamian, is a nutritional consultant, educator, author, and speaker with a passion for ketogenic therapies. She earned her master's in education from Smith College and her master's in human nutrition from Eastern Michigan University. She is board certified in nutrition by the Board for Certification of Nutritional Specialist, CNS. Miriam was inspired by the groundbreaking work of Thomas Seafried, who introduced her to the ketogenic diet for cancer a few years into her young son's treatment for a devastating brain tumor. Now in her book, Keto for Cancer, Miriam demystifies the diet for those who want to apply this nutritional strategy as part of a metabolic approach to cancer. More information is available at dietarytherapies.com. I welcome you to the Holistic Health Show, Miriam, and I look forward to hearing about the keto diet and cancer. Now, first, can you tell us what is the keto diet? Well, uh, the ketogenic diet has been it's it's been out in the news, out in the media for uh, several years now. Um, it is a very low carbohydrate, adequate to medium protein and high-fat diet. Uh, so what it's not, it is not a high-protein diet. You cannot be ketogenic with high protein. You cannot be ketogenic with high carbohydrates. So those two have to be kept very low. Uh, and the, so naturally, in order to get the energy that you need, you're going to increase the amount of fat. So originally developed for children with epilepsy, uh, it was also the only thing they had for uh, diabetes um, back in the 1920s, early early 30s. Uh, and then, of course, all that changed around with the introductions of uh, insulin for diabetes and uh, drug therapies for epilepsy. Mm-hmm. But it, a resurgence and uh, all kinds of uh, potential benefits as far as um, longevity, uh, as far as brain health. Definitely, we're seeing it with uh, cancer, with certain cancers. We're, we're not, it's not across the board, um, but I don't think it's as, as detrimental or harmful as some mm-hmm. people are painting it to be uh, for cancers. You know, we know it's really beneficial for brain cancers. We believe that controlling glucose and insulin is also um, the way to go for most other cancers. And Miriam... What led you to using a ketogenic diet for cancer? Mm, very personal story, Carl. Uh, your listeners can also go on uh, my website to learn more about it. Uh, my son was, uh, he was four years old in 2004 when we learned that he had uh, brain cancer. And, you know, that's devastating, of, of course, because it's, it's not a pretty picture. And uh, we went along with the standard of care. We really didn't know what else to do. Dr. Google wasn't giving us any useful information. It was just terrifying to look at what it said about pediatric brain tumors online at that time. So we went along with the program. And so he started chemo in December of 2004. And we uh, it, it failed him. We did some surgeries that wasn't helping. And so by the spring of 2007, he had also tried some additional chemos, and that wasn't working. Anti-angiogenic drugs not working. And they were moving him to palliative care. And that was just unacceptable. He wasn't even seven. He wasn't even seven yet. So um, I was online researching a drug. Uh, in 2007, you could do that. And I was uh, looking up one of the drugs they had placed him on in the trial, and I bookmarked the page and went back a few days later, and um, the site that I had bookmarked was uh, Science Daily. Well, Science Daily, of course, has a different um, a different uh, media release every day, and that day it was not about the, the drug that he was on, but it was uh, Dr. Thomas Seyfried from Boston College, a new paper, uh, a groundbreaking one. 
Um, it was about the ketogenic diet, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet in the management of brain cancer. And uh, it was a mouse model, and I had been already told, don't, don't trust mouse models for anything. They're not people. But uh, Dr. Seafried in his uh, paper had referenced a study uh, for uh, two pediatric brain tumor patients that had been done in, in the mid-90s. And again, this was like now the spring of 2007. Uh, I contacted him, he immediately sent me all this information. Well, all this information is what they had in 2007. So it was links to the Charlie Foundation for Pediatric Epilepsy. Um, it was uh, the Linda Nabling's paper on the pediatric oncology patients who had been placed on a ketogenic diet, uh, and information about the Johns Hopkins book that had uh, actually just the latest edition, I think it was the fourth edition at that time, had just come out. So after looking at all of this, uh, they're like, geez, they put kids on this. Um, what have we got to lose? So it wasn't like, what have we got to gain? It was more like, what have we got to lose in giving this a try? So it was a little hard, uh, you know, coming up against the, sure you can imagine, coming up against the uh, conventional medical community with this kind of information about a change in diet. And we got no support. We actually got some opposition from his kind of his big shot um, pediatric oncology specialist, but uh, our local guy, our local oncologist, and our local pediatrician were very supportive because they knew there was no other options and, mm-hmm. you know, besides palliative care. And so um, they agreed to monitor him, and we put him on a diet, and at three months he had an MRI, and I was hoping, 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 anything, please, anything, uh, and and. Instead of just anything, there was this amazing impact on the tumor. It has shrunk back from the margins with smaller in all dimensions, 10 mm-hmm. to 15%. And we hadn't seen any of that happen for him. So I needed to, to learn more. I needed to get, I needed to get up to speed with this because I knew it wasn't optimal what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be horrified to hear what I was feeding this poor kid. It was ketogenic. So we moved him to ketogenic, but it certainly wasn't high quality. And, uh, and I did, Finally, get to talk to the um, nutrition, uh, the ketogenic nutrition with the Charlie Foundation, and in an hour and a half, she kind of straightened out the wrinkles. And within a few days after that, I was looking for a graduate program. I found one in Eastern Michigan, um, not on ketogenics. It was a very uh, traditional program for registered dietitians, but I figured I needed that that grounding. I really knew nothing about mm-hmm. nutrition in 2007. So that's how I got to this. Unfortunately, my son died oh. uh, in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has lived eight and a half years instead of what they had projected for him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it was basically good quality of life. There was some real roller coaster downs in that, but um, we had him for eight and a half years, which just wasn't going to happen if we had continued on the path we were on. Mm-hmm. And what was the cause of death? Oh, it was, uh, he had a, a cyst on his brain stem. And, oh. uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't the same as like the, what you see with, uh, glioblastoma where there's, mm-hmm. uh, progression, uh, of the tumor. It was, uh, the pressure from the cyst. And, um, that's what ultimately, mm-hmm. they, they couldn't approach it surgically and there was nothing we could do at that point oh. from oh. preventing the damage from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Miriam, what is some of the basic science behind using the ketogenic diet for cancer? Well, the the speculation came originally from, uh, you know, knowing that uh, cancer cells use glucose. And uh, and that is, God, it's almost 100 years now, Carl, Mm -hmm. since uh, Warburg discovered uh, through observation that cancer cells uh, upregulate their use of glycolysis in the cytoplasm of the cell. Mm-hmm. So what that means basically is that, it, you know, cancer cells um, upregulate so they increase the number of receptors for insulin and for glucose transporting on the cell surface. And that brings this um, energy in. It brings this glucose in, in in higher numbers. And instead of running it through the more efficient mitochondria, it's fermenting it mm-hmm. in the in the cytoplasm of the cell, and in doing that, it's also creating a lot of lactic acid. 
And um, you can imagine, just like when you uh, take a culture and put it in milk, you can make yogurt or kefir that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're fermenting um, mm-hmm. the glucose that's in the um, in the dairy. And so with that lactate, some of it gets used within the cell for what they call biomass synthesis. That's to create some of the products that are needed for the cell to proliferate. But a lot of it, because it's so toxic to the cell, gets pushed out into the into the area surrounding the cancer cell, the microenvironment. Mm-hmm. And the microenvironment becomes very acidic and inflamed. And we know that that's the ideal situation for cancer cells. They, mm-hmm. That's what they thrive on. So um, so that is still true. That was uh, Otto Warburg discovered that in the 1920s. And uh, and that has never been disputed. Nobody disputes that cancer cells upregulate glucose. It's called the Warburg effect. Um, but it sort of got that information sort of got buried and downplayed with uh, the discovery that cancer cells have a lot of genetic mutations. Mm-hmm. But you know what came first, chicken or the egg here? Um, and and also the uh, observations since discovery since that cancer cells are also um, using a lot of um, glutamine primarily, but other amino acids as well. There are some cancers that use methionine. Um, to, there's some cancers that can uh, thrive on asparagus. So uh, there's all kinds of ways that cancer cells get their energy for proliferation and, and get the materials, the raw materials they need to build new cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And who is a good candidate for this diet? Oh, that's a great question. So, good candidate for the diet, and I do I I go into that in, in quite uh, detailed in my book because I think it's really important for people to understand that keto is not a weight gain diet. So, what keto is is that, uh, and this is how they discovered its use for epilepsy, is it mimics starvation, and there had been this observation for uh, since biblical times that um, putting somebody in a fasting state. Um, their epileptic seizures would go away. So it was uh, Russell Wilder that had sort of figured out that, okay, we can't fast these kids forever, but um, here we can do a diet that mimics fasting mm-hmm. and uh, get the same effect. Um, so kind of lost my train of thought there, Carl. Where were we? Carl? I'm not sure because when you said mimicking fasting, I was thinking of uh, Dr. Walter Longo, who's written the Walter book. Walter Longo's work, yeah. 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 So, we can talk about that in a little bit, too, because I think that's an important I thing. do, too. too. Very. Yeah. Yeah. So I was focusing on that, and I was losing track of everything else. Oh, about, it had to do with people uh, who are good candidates. So oh, I'll yeah. pick it up from mm-hmm. there. So uh, when you think about fasting, and uh, you are going to pair that up naturally with weight loss. So, um, so... Keto being a fasting mimicking diet, um, you are going to lose uh, some weight initially. I mean, it's a great weight loss diet, but mm-hmm. that's not always what we want in cancer. So low weight or nutritionally compromised, not a good place to start with this diet. Um, people who are undergoing really catabolic therapies, chemotherapies uh, generally, are going to have a hard time maintaining this diet. People with, um, with structural changes like Whipple procedure um, to their GI tract. Um, they may have uh, um, quite a quite a few more issues. Um, pancreatitis is a hard one to get by. Um, uh, primary liver cancers or metastasized liver cancers that have sent liver enzymes off the charts. Um, that's that's always a problem. And there's there's quite a few more, and I'd be happy to send people a list of those if they contact me. But um, yeah, there's there are people that shouldn't be doing this. But when you look mm-hmm. at the general uh, situation of people, um, especially here in the U.S., with so many people being um, above a normal weight to start with, but yeah, they have some leeway there to lose a little bit of weight therapeutically as they move into ketosis. And then our job is, okay, once they're at a weight that we want to keep, we've got to keep them there, and then we've got to change up the diet a little bit to um, to make sure that they're that they're not losing more weight. Um, so it, other people that have uh, issues with um, with it are just people who, who are so overwhelmed by their diagnosis or don't have any help with um, or don't have any control over um, 
the foods that they purchase or the meals that are prepared for them. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a difficult diet, but it's not a convenient diet either. So, um, and it takes just a little bit of education to get up to speed with the basics of it. Um, and then it just, it's, it's a, it's a whole lot of, um, moving, always moving to the next step and improving what you started with. Mm-hmm. And Miriam, are there modified versions of this diet? That may still be helpful. Yeah, uh, that and I and I do that a lot with people that I I work with. I kind of do an assessment of where they're at initially and decide what kind of a diet we're going to start with. I always like to start with um, a pretty uh, rigorous ketogenic diet, but that's not always an option. And if it's not, we'll go low carb, low glycemic index and see if we uh, you know if we can get um, this person into ketosis with um, with that strategy. Um, there's a modified forms that are that are out there, like the modified Atkins diet, which is still controlling uh, car- carbohydrate intake, but you're not as focused on the amount of protein, and that works for epilepsy, and it could work with certain types of cancer as well, especially if somebody's low weight coming into it. Um, but those are primarily, and then um, also if uh, if somebody is uh, like receiving chemotherapy. Or even if they're not, there's some benefit to some therapeutic fasting. So even if they're low weight, um, this may still be an option for them. Because as you know, Carl, mm-hmm. somebody starts chemotherapy, their appetite just, you know, hits rock mm-hmm. bottom. Nobody's ever like, oh my God, I just can't wait for the next meal. Um, you know, because it's so disruptive to the GI tract. Mm-hmm. So, um, Walter Longo in California developed something called the fasting mimicking diet. It's, it's a proprietary, but not a secret formula. Uh, so anybody who wants to can kind of study up on what to do and decide if they want to buy his product or if they want to just, you know, attempt to do this on, on, not totally on their own. Of course, you need to. Uh, understand what you're doing, but that involves fasting around chemotherapy so that you're reducing the GI side effects of the chemotherapy um, and you're also enhancing the sensitivity of the cancer cells to the treatment. And it doesn't need to be a water-only fast. It can, it can be done as a um, more of like a fat fast. Uh, and I think it's always best to be at or near ketosis when you start this so that you're not losing muscle mass. Mm-hmm. In, or mm-hmm. I should say that you're losing less muscle mass. Mm-hmm. In the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the one of the problems that I've seen with uh, older people on the ketogenic diet is uh, they are more likely to be less physically active, and the older you get, um, the more uh, it, the more muscle mass you're going to lose. That's what we view as part of aging, and it and it happens earlier than we'd like to think. Um, but it really speeds up in that uh, age range of people who are most commonly diagnosed with cancer. So I see it a lot in people in their late 50s onward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look at that as sarcopenia and that combined with the fasting can, um, you know, can increase the rate of muscle loss. So we've got to be like carefully managing what we're doing with protein in um, older people or those who are undergoing catabolic therapy. Well, I interviewed him, and one thing I was impressed is that he has 50,000 subjects in his ongoing research looking at I know. the value of that diet with all kinds of chronic illnesses. And I found that impressive. Yeah, but, and, and so I use it, even though mm-hmm. his is plant-based, and, and I don't think people have to go plant-based. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that as a model because he's collected uh, data on that. And mm-hmm. That data is, um, is is very important to our understanding of what actually happens when we create this nutrient deprivation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this nutrient, I should say, it's more like the signaling that goes on at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. So the signaling says, "Oh, it's austerity time. We got to shut down all this extraneous stuff that's going on and really ramp up some of these other pathways so that we can get through this." And those are the um, health-enhancing um, pathways. So it's not just about fighting cancer, Carl. It's about improving your overall mm-hmm. Right. And that, of course, improving your health is going to help your body 
fight the cancer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's a, to me, it's a, a win-win as long as we can prevent that catabolism mm-hmm. from happening. Mm-hmm. Great. And what are some of the differences between the diet used for cancer and the diet used for other things like weight loss or diabetes? Yeah, so especially in weight loss. Um, so what we know, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. What we know about diets that have been out there for a long time, and, the, you know, people, when I say Atkins, people immediately identify with what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, they may not be totally accurate in what they're thinking, but they, they have a basic idea of what we're talking about here. And it's a very efficient weight loss diet because what most people do with uh, Atkins in that induction phase, they cut out the carbohydrate. They're, they're really good. People are really good at understanding how to cut down on the carbs. They get that right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are, they are not cutting down on protein. If anything, they're adding a little more protein. Um, and that makes up for some, but certainly not all of the calories. You sort of have, you reach a satiety point with protein where you don't want any more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you're creating a calorie deficit. Um, but it's a calorie deficit that, uh, doesn't leave you feeling hungry because all you did was cut out the carbs that are causing your glucose to rise and then insulin comes in and then you get this drop in glucose and that's where you get that hunger signaling coming in. Well, when you level out glucose and insulin, you don't get that kind of signaling anymore. So it's weight loss without the hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so when you compare that to what we're trying to do with uh, ketogenic, yes, we are trying to uh, to mimic starvation here, but not for the creation of weight loss. That's not our end goal. That can be a side benefit for some people. Or as I said, it can also be a downside for others. Um, but the goal with uh with the fasting is to is to change the signaling uh nutrient signaling and to make the uh nutrients that cancer is going to thrive on less available to them. Mm-hmm. So uh when we cut out the carbs we have to replace some of that with fat. It's not a free for all on fat. Um, we don't want this to be a weight gain diet, like I said before, because that disrupts that signaling about it being a, a starvation state and we've got to um, you know, shut down this uh, feeding of cancer cells. Um, so we don't want that to happen. Um, with diabetes, the goal, of course, is to better regulate glucose and insulin. Mm-hmm. And so protein is less important in that. It, it, you know, they, they need to get people into ketosis and get them moving along. You look at what Verda Health is doing. It's an excellent model for diabetes. So, And, and Dr. Uh, Eric Westman in uh, North Carolina, he also has a clinic, heal care clinic, uh, and they're doing a similar, more relaxed version. They're not re- relying on um, online platforms to, to, to do this in, or data. It's not as data-driven, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so in diabetes, uh, the protein is somewhat of an issue, but it's not as big an issue. The focus is more on uh, using ketogenic diet to uh, lower those spikes in glucose, even out the insulin, uh, and make uh, uh the diabetes drugs more effective with the hope of eventually eliminating them even. Mm-hmm. They are reversing diabetes mm-hmm. in the ketogenic diet. Great. Good. And, Miriam, are you concerned at all about any long-term effects of the ketogenic diet? I think that, and, and I'm not alone in thinking this. You mm-hmm. look at uh, people have been in this field for 30 years, like Jeff Bullock and, and Steve Finney, and, and you can find them at Verda Health, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not seeing long-term downsides to a keto, a well, what they call a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And that's essential, Carl, because like you know, food is so important. The quality of the food is so important to, um, to what you do long-term. Mm-hmm. So even though I'll, I will work with anybody, um, to get them started on ketogenic and we'll start anywhere that they're at. And if that means, you know, Ham slices with cream cheese will go for it, and then then they learn how to to pull back from the lower quality foods and to uh, to use all of these great um, options. I mean, keto diet has a non-starchy uh, vegetables. You can certainly eat your fill, mm-hmm. but for most people, it's eating their fill of these non-starchy vegetables. Uh, it's just not you know not becoming. Uh, uh, too tied to the, uh, you know, the root vegetables, which are very starchy. Um, and, you know, minimizing, uh, the amount of, uh, garlic or onion or tomato or, or the things that are a little bit higher in carbohydrate. 
Um, so, yeah, there's, there's that, uh, aspect of improving food quality, teaching people about nutrition as they go along in this. So long term, I think it can be very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I really, um, impress upon people is the need to get low quality foods out of their diet. But I start really, it's like if it's got soybean oil on it, in it, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is not a healthy oil. Don't even give it away. Just throw it away. Um, and, you know, tell all of your friends about the, the dangers. It's an inflammatory and unnatural mm-hmm. way to get your fats. So, uh, and people people tune into that over time. They, mm-hmm. So I say come, come for the cancer, but stay for all the health benefits you get from improving your diet. And I assume that organic is a part of the keto diet. Uh, yeah. Again, if people can't afford organic, if that's going to be a stopper for them, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially, Carl, when you think about it, people with cancer that are undergoing therapy, they're putting poison in their veins. Mm-hmm. They're ingesting right, poison. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's a little bit extra in the form of something that might not be, you know, non-GMO or organic? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's the education process of moving them to a higher level with this and prioritizing. So mm-hmm. if, you know, if they can't find the best quality beef, mm-hmm. grass-fed, grass-finished beef, um, then, you know, okay, find a, another source, use small portions, uh, and work towards you know, improving um, your sources um, as well as, uh, you know, just your diet in general with uh, the variety of things that you bring into the diet. So to stay on it long-term, people, it has to be palatable and uh, it has to be affordable and it has to be more convenient with time. Mm-hmm. And as people get used to the diet, all of those things seem to happen and uh, and. I, it's just that that's one of the rewar- very rewarding parts of what I do is mm-hmm. to watch those kinds of changes. In people. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's also rewarding when they report back to me that their MRI was looking awful good or their <laughs> blood markers were were much improved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're really striving for. But these other um, changes over time are mm-hmm. also helpful. And also, um, and, and you know, it's, in, it's like buried in Chapter 16 of my book um, about how to liberalize this diet over time. So even though I'm ketogenic, I'm not sticking to the most rigorous forms of it. Mm-hmm. So I can include berries, uh, especially seasonally when they're going to, you know, when they're going to be mm-hmm. really tasty. Um, and it may shift me to a little lower level of ketosis or even out of ketosis temporarily. But um, my Body is so much more tuned in now to, uh, to how, uh, you know, to this seasonal changes that, um, I can do that without causing a big spike in, mm-hmm. in my glucose. Mm-hmm. One thing I've discovered is that where I live, at least, there are people that have their own gardens and they put out the mm-hmm. surplus. Usually they'll put out a little box and they'll say it's so much per pound and you weigh it and you leave the money and it's on an honor system. I usually check with That's them a wonderful thing. first to make sure that they don't use Roundup or one of the carcinogens. So if they don't use the Roundup and they just use fertilizer, you know, then I will buy from them and it's much cheaper than you spend for food, for vegetables at least, and fruit in the supermarkets. And if right, it, and, and it's locally grown, and the local grown is what Edgar Casey advocated, and so you know, it's to me, it's as good as the organic because you know where it's grown and who's growing it and all of that. And so that's right. But here, I'm going to share something with you. Uh-huh. I, I live in a, a rural area in Montana, mm-hmm. and so our um, our growing season is very limited. What we, uh, you know, we're still not seeing, you know, much beyond the early spring stuff here in our farmer's market. And then uh, every few years we have some fires come through awfully close here and they drop fire retardant. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's getting into, even in our organic communities, getting into the soil and the water. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what is that? You know, so so it's like it's not a a guarantee that you're going to uh, avoid all the toxins in the environment. So it's Mm -hmm. just... it, tuning up your body so it can handle the occasional toxins or low levels of toxins is uh, is you know a way 
um, better thing to do than, um, you know, just staying unaware of what's going on. So mm-hmm. if you know um, the limitations of what you're eating, then you can kind of, you can pick and choose and, and um, make your cho- make healthier choices all along. And also a lot of things can be uh, frozen. If people have a, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, an auxiliary freezer isn't expensive to own or run. And uh, that can go a long way to providing you with a fresher stuff, even if it's not totally local. I mean, if I had to depend on local greens here, I, I would not be eating anything fresh over the mm-hmm. <laughs> What I do is during the summer months when the berries are plentiful, because I eat berries every morning on my cereal, and especially the blueberries and raspberries, if I can get them, but... I get them in the summer where they're from the United States, but organic. They're cheaper, and then I freeze them, and then I use those all winter. And so that's, right, that's a that's a great idea. And I don't think people always think of that because I was at Whole Food one day, and I was buying some blueberries, and the woman said, "Boy, you eat a lot of those." I said, "No, I buy a lot of them. I freeze them for the winter." She said, "Oh, that's a good idea." She said, "I'm going to do that." <laughs> so she picked up a bunch of them. I mean, it's a simple thing, but a lot of people don't even think about doing that. So. Well, and here, and that person at Whole Foods is more food conscious, more likely to be food conscious mm-hmm. um, than you know people who don't have the opportunity of having that kind of market available to them or don't see the value in shopping in that kind of market. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you did a good service that day. <laughs> One of the cancer clinics that I know of. I interviewed Dr. Robert Esslinger. Do you know that name? He runs the Reno Integrative Center in Reno, Nevada. I've interviewed him a couple times, and he's also on my Cancer Foundation board. And I asked him the diet, and they use the ketogenic diet there with their cancer. And they use some some great non-toxic, non-harming anti-cancer therapies there too right unfortunately i I just wish that these kinds of things were accessible to everybody it's it's only accessible to a small group of people that i can travel to reno for treatment and afford therapy Mm -hmm. um what my goal my passion is to see that available to you know to people as readily as the system that we have now Mm -hmm. the other thing he does and that is he starts his patients on immune builders and the diet. Those are the two things they start out with to build up the body before they get heavy into the treatments. And I, at, he told me one day when we were talking, he said, I use a mushroom preparation. And I said, oh, I said, I use one every day to build my immune system. I said, it 17 types of organic mushrooms. And he said, oh, the one I use is also. And I said, is it host defense? And he said, yeah, that's the one yeah. I use. Do that's you, the one I recommend to people. Do yeah. you? Good, good. Yeah. That must be why the price is going and, up. Uh, and you know what? Another <laughs> immune booster, Carl, a really uh-huh. important immune booster mm-hmm. is just getting some good quality sleep and reducing stress in your life and being physically active. All of those things, well, especially the sleep, Yep. Um, is known to uh, enhance your immune system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and it's not a priority for a lot of people. You know, we all think of the, ourselves as being really busy, but uh, cancer is a wake-up call. Right. right. So people will make. I I have a, a new client who is moving from um, uh, Upper State New York, or no, not Upper State. She's moving from New York to Miami mm-hmm. in the next month. Um, uh, just. Uh, uh, you know, kind of concurrent with her cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and focusing in more on stress reduction, um, reducing the amount of travel she does because that's very disruptive to sleep and to and uh, it's and also circadian rhythm. So mm-hmm. enhancing circadian rhythm, improving sleep, all those things that are known to boost the immune mm-hmm. system. And I think that they're so important, Miriam. I was fortunate that about four years before. I developed cancer in, in 1974. I was in a Edgar Casey Search for God group, and an emphasis was on all of the spiritual attributes and how you use these in your daily life. And also, my master's and doctoral programs 
emphasize that there are multiple factors that lead up to disease processes. So it seemed to me that if there are multiple factors that lead up to a disease process or a healthy process, then there are multiple things that one can do to maintain their health or to recover from an illness. And so I was very much into holism as a result of that experience, those two experiences. And so I use things like prayer, meditation, affirmation, visualization, being positive, trying to be of service to others, etc. And I believe that, like you're saying, that that holistic approach is so important, not only for preventing and treating cancer, but for preventing and treating and staying healthy throughout life. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, when they come to me, they already have some type of religious or spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. those uh, for those people, actually for everybody, I like to talk about um, meditation. And if they claim not to be meditators, there are even meditation-type practices that uh, can uh, circumvent that problem, and everybody can follow their breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that the uh, the potential for that to lower stress hormones, to get you out of the flight or fight response, mm-hmm. um, and and just to get you breathing properly and oxygenating your body properly mm-hmm. um, and calming the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, breath work calms the mind. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if people don't have some kind of practice, they really should. Right. They should right. have some kind of, whether it's, whether it's prayer or meditation or um, breath work. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because sometimes people do these things, but they've never put a name on it. I said to my mother once something about meditation, and she said, oh, what's that? And I explained it to her, and she said, oh, I've done that all my life. But she never identified it as meditation, but she'd been doing it. Uh So I think that there's probably a lot of people that do some of these things, but they don't identify it. And I think sometimes, or they don't realize how important that is to uh, to their well-being, health, um, but also their mental well-being. Well, I think also that they sometimes don't realize that it's part of a healing process because I've interviewed people that had cancer and they'd say, "Well, I did chemo and I did surgery," and then I, as we talked, I'd say, "Do you pray?" "Oh yeah, I pray every day." Uh, "Do you meditate?" Oh, yeah, I do that. But see, they don't connect those because those Yeah, are they things. don't associate it with... Yeah, with, uh, right. Uh, yep. yeah. I think that a lot of these things that people have been doing may be what makes the difference between who lives and does not live, but are taking the same treatment for cancer. Well, and, and I want to I want, I want to uh, throw something in on that because mm-hmm. there are some people who layer guilt on themselves on top of their disease Mm-hmm. Because they haven't been able to reverse their de- disease um, affirmations or meditation or holistic healthy foods, uh, they haven't been able to uh, to turn it around. And I would never, in a million years, want these people to think that they're mm-hmm. a failure, that there's some kind of flaw in them as a person. Um, because Carl, it mm-hmm. all boils down to we are all going to die at some point, and we're going to die for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And in I think a good death um, is is more important, uh, is is very important. So if it's a good death from cancer or a, a good death despite heart disease, um, living your life as fully as you can with the limitations that you're dealing with is is so important. Well, I you know we lost our son. But mm-hmm. he, in that, uh, in, in that time that we did have with him, um, it was important to get it right. And, uh, so his, his life was very, very different from, uh, a, a lot of kids. I mean, usually when you have a child, you're looking forward to the future and you kind of delay a lot of things. Oh, when he graduates, oh, when he's out of, you know, when he's, when he's out in the working world. And we didn't have that option of thinking that way. So it was all about, um, of making him feel loved and cared for and appreciated and, and learning what we could from him. So mm-hmm. even though he died at 13, um, he, he was such an old soul, taught a lot of people a lot of things. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I will always be grateful for the time that I had with him 
and I show that in what I'm willing to share with other people. I think that everything happens for a reason and that being positive attracts positive responses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the people that tend to be positive probably would not blame themselves thinking that they were doing something wrong, but would look for what is there in this situation that I'm supposed to be learning and oh, how so can true, yeah. I improve on my life and all. But I also believe that in reincarnation, and I've never read much about it, but the reason that I believe in it is because I grew up in the Methodist religion and was taught that if you're good, you go to heaven, and if you don't, you go to hell. And to me, a loving God would not submit That's right. people to hell. And furthermore, a loving God would not start people at different places at birth so that there are those who have defects at birth, those who are well at birth, those who have money at birth, those who do not have money, those are black, some are uh, white, you know. And so we're all starting at a different level. And if you assume that you only have one lifetime, it doesn't make sense that a loving God would would put us in that situation and give us a limited amount of time to resolve it. And so reincarnation has always made sense to me. And karma has always made sense to me that there are certain lessons that we need to learn and that we are put in the situations that help us to learn those lessons to grow spiritually because we are a spirit that takes on a body in order to to develop these experiences. So I tried in my lifetime to have developed a philosophy for myself that makes sense, that accounts for variations that you see in life and why this happens to one person and not another. And recently I read, and I think this again makes a lot of sense, that we are really even in control about the situations that may happen in my life, in our life, because we make contra- soul contracts at birth that... And you know, Carl, this is all, that's all uh, very interesting and it's a personal philosophy for you, but I want to emphasize again that people don't have to have a philosophy in order to um, to make the kinds of changes in their life that will lead to them... Uh, experiencing the, the best circumstances that they can in the time that they have on, on Earth. So, uh, you know, I, I, there are like a whole, like I said before about the spectrum between uh, when we were talking earlier um, off offline about the spectrum, diet spectrum from people who are totally vegan to those who are totally carnivore. It's sort of, it's, I see that too with spirituality. And um, so, again, I don't want to put any kinds of parameters around what people should or shouldn't be doing as far as their spirituality. Um, and what you're saying works for some people in their thinking, but not for, for everybody. But I, I, my hope is that everybody latches on to the things, finds the things, continues to develop and grow throughout their life. Um, and uh, and is the best, you know, not to use a, a trait, trite kind of overused um but, you know, the best version of themselves. Uh, and all of those things that you mentioned are important to that, and people come to them from different places. Mm-hmm. So would you like to tell us about your book and services and how the listeners uh, can sure. reach you? Um, yeah, I, I, a couple of years ago, I finished writing my book, Keto for Cancer, um, a targeted uh, approach. And um, I put it out there because I, I felt people really – I was getting a lot of requests from uh, practitioners and really kind of savvy um, people who had been in the in the health improvement world for a long time. It's like, how do we do this? How do we do it right? Because all they were seeing was like the Kim Kardashian keto stories online. Um, and so I just felt it was really important to, to give a basic outline of the science, although I stress that you don't need to know the science in order to do this. 
and then to uh, structure a plan as completely as I could around uh, how you develop that well-formulated diet I referred to earlier. So, you know, that's my book, Keto for Cancer. You can get it on my site or on Amazon. My website is dietarytherapies.com. Uh, I have uh, more about my son's story on there and some uh, links to um, to resources. I have a lot of webcasts and, and uh, I mean, podcasts and videos uh, posted there, and I'll be happy to put this one on there, too. Um, and, I, and I present when I can. Um, at conferences. Uh, that's how people initially hear about me. Uh, and I do have a limited, limited Facebook presence uh, under my name, Miriam Kalamian, but also under Ketogenic Diet for Breast Cancer. Uh, and I will very occasionally tweet something if, I, if it um, really sparks something in me that I want to get out there. So that's, that's how people find me. Um, my uh, email is dietarytherapies excuse me, info at dietarytherapies.com. Um, and I, I welcome any anybody to uh, contact me. And do you... I, I work with... I, I do work with people. I forgot to mention that. Mm-hmm. I work with people. I'm not a long-term coach. It's not like you sign up and, you you know, you need to commit to three weeks with me. We just basically, we start with a, with one call. And if you can get up to speed with that one call, great. If you need some, some more help, we can, you know, plan to meet again. And that was what I was going to ask you, is if you had a service. Can you yeah. give us your website again? It's dietarytherapies.com. Great. Good. People can most easily just find me through my name, Miriam Kalamian. It's pretty distinctive. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I thank you very much, Miriam. It's been interesting. It's a topic that is of interest to a lot of people right now. And so I'm happy that you spent the time explaining this for my audience so i thank you again well and and thank you for this opportunity because carl what we both know is that uh there's not one way to uh mm-hmm. to, to get what we do mm-hmm. respectively out into the world so we're we're we have to depend on and we're both sort of in that world of the the top down going through the conventional um, you know, having an understanding of what's happening in the conventional mm-hmm. world, but also understanding that the bottom up, which is the grassroots movement, um, is is what uh, is critical to this uh, because it's not going to come about on its own. Right. Um, so that intersection of the two is is what is going to bring us to the point where uh, conventional care is going to start to integrate some of these really important things. You see it already with, hey, well, maybe yoga's okay, or maybe some stress reduction. Maybe people should do some stress mm-hmm. reduction. Um, so, you know, you see the beginnings of it, but boy, we should be a lot further along in that process, shouldn't we? Right, right. Good. Okay, thank you, Miriam. All right, thank you, Carl. Bye-bye. Bye. In the time left today, I would like to tell you about my latest book on preventing cancer which is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and other bookstores, as well as on my cancer website, Holistic Cancer Foundation. The book titled Reducing Your Cancer Risk, A Holistic Approach, uses a public health model for the framework. In general, the framework postulates that there are multiple factors that lead to health or disease processes in our lives, And these include host factors, environmental factors, and agent disability factors. In order for disease to occur, there must be a strong disease or disabling agent, a weak host, and a favorable environment that brings them together. It is possible to intervene at various points in this process to prevent disease or move us toward a healthy phase. We focus on the period before the disease agent interacts with the host and our interventions are directed towards strengthening the host, reducing the virulence of the agent, and making the environment less favorable for future interactions. Things one can do to reduce the impact of the environment and agent include working with electromagnetic frequency waves, ultraviolet waves, carcinogenic chemicals, and carcinogenic metals in the environment. Research on how these affect humans 
and ways to eliminate or reduce their effect are presented. For example, bisphenol A or BPA is an endocrine disruptor and may cause cancer of the breast and prostate. It is found in plastic water bottles, canned food lining, eating and cooking utensils, among other sources. During the summer months, when water bottles are transported in unrefrigerated trucks, the heat causes the BPA to leach into the water that you later drink. There are also things you can do to become more resistant. These include physical interventions, proper nutrition and fluids, physical activities, vitamins, minerals, herbs, and supplements, immune builders, smoking cessation, and use of sound or music. For example, research shows that eating proper nutrition reduces your cancer risk by 35%, and exercising 30 minutes a day for five days a week reduces it by 50%. Research also shows a strong body-mind-spirit interaction and the effects of mental-spiritual factors on disease. Thus, one should pay attention to forgiveness, faith, prayer, optimism, being positive, helping others, affirmations, and other activities. Research on the effect of physical, mental, spiritual behaviors and health illness are discussed in the book and what you can do with these behaviors to make the body more resistant. For example, about 50% of cancer patients have a forgiveness problem, and failing to deal with this leads to chronic anxiety and a depletion of killer cells that protect against disease. Ways to deal with forgiveness problems are presented. In addition, links to interviews with over 75 experts on the topics discussed in the book are included. I thank you for joining me this week and I hope some of the information was useful. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, your host. <music>